Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. This week, I'm working on the future women's strategy for next year, and it's been quite challenging with so many moving parts. How can you project a plan for the future of your business when political and economic conditions are so changeable? Perhaps what I need is help. So my next guest is Kiara Laurie, the CEO of Right Lane. Kiara is skilled in strategy development and execution, stakeholder management and change management. She graduated from Columbia University, the law school at ANU. She's worked for Boston Consulting and was a policy advisor inside the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. So I wanted to know from Kiara what the key elements of a strategy are, when you might need one, and how to go about building a strategy without the help of someone like her. Kiara, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Talk to me about being a management consultant. I feel like we all sort of know what that means, but we we don't really. So what does that mean? It kind of makes me want to laugh. I got my very uh, final interview with the um, managing partner of BCG many years ago, and he said, do you have any questions after rounds of interviews? And I said, can you just kind of talk me through a day? Like, what do you do when you get up in the morning? Like, you put on a suit, but like, then what do you do? And I feel like management consulting does kind of have this, what does it, what does it look like? And it, it's tricky because actually every day looks different and it's what I love about it. But to the extent that your question is like, what does it mean? Like, to me, being a consultant means fundamentally trying to be helpful. Management consultants are in client services. Our work is about helping our clients. And I feel really lucky that, um, you know, I get to work with amazing clients every day. At Right Lane, we talk about being inspired by our clients' missions, and that's absolutely the case. You know, I think about the things that are keeping me busy right now, keeping our team busy right now. You know, we're helping an organisation design a new program to radically think differently about how you do early intervention for family violence. You know, we're helping two big social service organisations come together in a merger to deliver better outcomes for their clients. We're helping a health service think about how to restructure to become national. We're trying to help them solve their problems, but every day does look a bit different. Um, And thanks to COVID, I don't even put on a suit every day. So the answer I got back uh, many years ago isn't isn't even quite right. It is a really fascinating kind of career choice because you do get to do all, all the fun bits. And of course, the criticism is you, you, you come up with a solution and then you disappear. But <laughs> listening to you just now, I was like, oh gosh, I could really do with you on a number of fronts. But tell us a bit about your career journey and how you got to be a sought after consultant. So I um, I always feel like I should have um, a really good story about this. You know, I set the goal and, and I achieved it. Um, and I feel like now when I do recruiting, I'm like, 
always really impressed and find myself with a bit of imposter syndrome sitting in interviews with these amazing um, young candidates who have really like set this goal and, and made it happen. But I have to admit that I didn't know what management consulting was, um, certainly not at school, definitely not at university, um, not until I was a bit into my career. I spent my young years thinking about, you know, what was going to be my role. And um, when I finished school, I went off to South Africa and um, volunteered with uh, an education not-for-profit and went off to university and studied arts law because I had this, you know, idealistic notion that the law was a tool for justice and that was going to be my kind of way to, you know, make change in the world. And kind of the further I went along that, I realised that the fundamentals of being a lawyer were actually not suited to who I am as a person. You know, you have to be really good in the detail. You have to be um, pretty good at working alone, actually. You have to be really inspired by that incremental change that comes from doing casework. And that's not who I am. I, I love big picture problem solving. I love working in teams. Uh, and so when I graduated, I went off and I worked at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet in the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd era. And it was all very exciting. And that was when I first encountered management consultants. And I worked with lots of consultants. And what really uh, inspired me about that work and what I found really fulfilling about the work I did was that uh, there were really discrete problems to be solved. It was really focused. It was all in, you know, we were a, we were a team and we we're going to get this done. Um, often in a pretty tight timeline sort of way. And so I went off and, and I joined um, BCG and I thought I'd be a consultant for a couple of years while I worked out what I was really going to do and where my place was. But I'm still doing it well over a decade later because I love the challenge of problem solving that comes with being a consultant. I love the impact of getting to work alongside clients and organisations doing remarkable things in the world and I still love working in teams. Your company, Right Lane, is, is also quite interesting. Can you, can you tell the listeners why it's interesting and why it's a bit different from those big consulting firms? I'm, of course, biased. Uh, it, is, it is my, um, my place, but um, Right Lane's a really special company. We have a brilliant team of clever, kind people committed to working in partnership with our clients to create impact. You know, we're a purpose-driven uh, company uh, serving the purpose economy, uh, our vision as an organisation is about trying to create and lead a new and disruptive ethical consulting category that better reflects a more sustainable balance of interests between, you know, Right Lane, our team, our clients and society. And as an organisation, what that means is that we're regularly asking ourselves, what else can we do to live that purpose? What else can we do to increase our contribution to society? Questions that really unite us with our clients in many ways because that's what they're asking too. And, you know, we were the first management consulting um, company to become B Corp certified. Um, in July last year, we became the first management consulting company to be majority foundation owned. And that new governance and ownership structure through the Right Lane Foundation is all about mission authenticity. Uh, it's about firm sustainability and renewal. It's about doubling down on our purpose and feels very uh, like a very natural progression for our team. This is a really blunt and potentially massively inappropriate question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. How does money feature in all of this? Because the thing that consultants are usually aligned with, a bit like law firms, mm. is big fees, vast amounts of money going in the door. How does that, how do you reconcile a profitable, um, successful organisation and that purpose? I'm so glad you asked it. Um, <laughs> so that is why we are now uh, majority foundation owned. We had been an employee 
shareholder business and that had been a really terrific model for us as we got started. But we'd been really successful. And so that meant actually the ability to be an inclusive uh, business where uh, we could continue to have our employees be owners of the company. Actually, the success had made that difficult to do. And also, you know, we're working uh, every day with clients trying to do amazing things in the world. And, you know, we we have lower fees than the, the big consulting firms. Uh, we work in different ways to try and deliver, you know, really good value for money for our clients. But ultimately, like, I am running a profitable company and I'm trying to run a highly efficient uh, company. But to the extent now that we are turning a profit, those profits and those dividends are going to be paid to the Right Lane Foundation who will distribute those along a broad charitable purpose. And we've kept it deliberately broad. The idea is that our employees are all have the option to be members of the foundation. We have employee directors and that those uh, disbursements can be made really about reinvesting in those uh, missions that inspire us every day from our clients. You know, I, I want to be able to say to government, and we serve government all the time, you know, we will try and do this as efficiently and effectively as possible. And to the extent that we're turning a profit from this work, we're reinvesting it in that broader social purpose that we share with you. So interesting. And I feel like I need to ask you a lot more questions about that, but I'm going to move on because what I want to understand from you today and to all the people that are listening is if I'm building a strategy and it can be big or it can be small, it can be for a week, it can be for five years, what is a strategy? Quite simply, um, it's an articulation of what do you want to achieve and your plan to get there. I think we all have strategies in our life that we don't necessarily articulate on a piece of paper in the way that we often do with our clients. But, you know, it's, it's, it's setting the goal and then working out how you're going to get there. And it can be hard because it requires you to make choices and choices are hard. Like what do you do and what don't you do importantly? But it doesn't need to be complex. In fact, most of the time we work with our clients to try and get their whole strategy, big national global organisations, get their whole strategy on a single page. Is it possible to give me an example? Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, even if I think about our strategy at Right Lane, you know, we think about what is our vision, as I shared earlier. Um, we have three core objectives. Um, and then we have a whole heap of initiatives that sit under there. They're the plans that try and make them happen. Or we did as part of training uh, not so long ago for an, another organisation trying to explain what a strategy was. And we used the example of a house. And so, you know, when we work on strategies with our, our clients at Right Lane, we think about it in kind of two parts. Strategic thinking, asking the questions, what do you want to achieve? Or where do you want to play? How do you want to win? Who do you want to compete against? Uh, and then we think about strategic planning. You know, what are the things you're going to do they're going to get you there. How are you going to measure your success? Whose name are you putting against these things? Who's going to be accountable? And so, you know, if you're going to build a house, you might start with how much space do you want? Like what kind of space do you want? Where do you want it to be? And you're going to get to a plan eventually that's going to be about sort of probably, in most people's cases, who's going to build it for you? How are you going to hold them accountable? How are you going to measure success? It'll have a timeline uh, and it'll have lots of detail about sort of costs and sorts of things as well. So... Is it easy to articulate the difference between a strategy and a plan? A strategy, I think, needs to be much bigger than a plan. You know, your plan is how you're getting to achieving your strategy. Your, your, your strategy is what are you trying to achieve? Ultimately, 
You know, what's your purpose for being? Your plan is, you know, the things you're going to do to get you there. Um, you know, if we think about perhaps a sports club, you know, their purpose might be around winning premierships and their plan will be something to do with who are they going to recruit, how are they going to train them, uh, what programs they're going to have around it. So the difference between the strategy, like the, the sports club could have a plan to win next year or win in five years' time, um, or their strategy could be actually just to give kids a really great club to be a part of. Absolutely. And that's why it's hard because you're making choices when you set your strategy. You know, is it all about winning the premiership or is it about providing the most opportunities possible for kids to play the sport? Depending on which choices you make and what you prioritise in setting your strategy, you're going to then need a different plan to try and achieve that. And making those choices can be really hard because all organisations are resource constrained in one way or another, whether it's dollars or people or time. And so the work and strategy, the work that we do with boards and executive teams that's really challenging is about setting out those choices. What are the pros and cons? And you have to do that with imperfect information. You'll uh, never be able to kind of really play out all of the scenarios and know with any confidence that it'll happen. What happens then, um, asking for a friend, if you, <laughs> if you decide to, all right, so you've got the sporting club analogy, um, we're just going to help kids have a safe place to play sport, we don't really care about grand finals, but all of a sudden we're winning. We're winning every week and we can taste the grand final. Can I change my strategy midway through or do I have to stick to it? Look, a strategy is about aligning people. It's about aligning resources. It's about having that shared view. You know, you need a strategy most when you're working with a team. You know, if it, if, if it was you on your own, you could probably just do it and you'd change all the time. And so, yes, people change their strategies. People review them. I mean, we've all uh, lived through the last few years of COVID. Strategies got thrown out the door, you know. There was a lot of, you know, refresh uh, work work happening. Of course you can change it, but what matters uh, when you're setting your strategy and particularly, you know, for, for bigger organisations is that alignment piece. So if you're going to make a strategic choice to change what is your strategy, you're going to decide actually, you know what, we thought this was about participation and now it's about winning you can do that, but if you're going to successfully execute that, if you're going to be able to put a plan in place to make that happen, you're going to have to align your people around that change in choice and then align your resources. And that's hard to do. Does everyone have the ability to be a strategic thinker? Or is that a particular skill? I think everyone absolutely has the ability to be a strategic thinker. I think that often what happens is that people are really caught up in the day-to-day. They're just like head down executing. So much of like running an organization can be survival mode. And to be a strategic thinker, you need the luxury of time and space. And often that's what our work with our clients is about creating. It's the board strategy day. Do you, like, could you have done it in a different way? Yes. But being in a different space, having a whole day where you're not in your office, where your computer isn't next to you, um, that space to think, having the shared starting point 
and the kind of the pre-work that we might do for something like that. Um, I'm going to plug the interview I did with Mel Silver not so long ago from Google, who actually blocks out a day. I don't know whether it's a day, a week or a day, a month, where she just does thinking, um, which I thought was just a great piece of advice if you're running an organisation where things are happening very quickly or a very big organisation or you, you do need the time to kind of ponder a few things. Just block out the time. I have breakfast by myself every Friday morning. I leave the house as early as possible, hoping not to wake my small children uh, and don't have my phone. I just have my notebook and myself and breakfast. Well, that's a good point, right? Because if you're doing strategies for a bunch of clients and let, you just mentioned three you've got on the go at the moment, how do you find the mental space to apply your strategic skills to different clients? So it's a little bit in the kind of the practice, but actually um, we also have the advantage of doing this every day. And like anything else, you know, if, if you have to set your strategy once every kind of three to five years, as many organizations do and go through that process, your muscle memory on how to do that might be a bit rusty. But we're, we're, we're doing this sort of work with our clients every day. And so part of it is that we have processes that we use that we feel really confident in helping bring to bear the right kinds of conversations. We, uh, you know, use the different frameworks and tools every day. And also, ultimately, we don't make the strategic choices. They have to be made by the organisations that we're serving because there's certainly consulting that exists in the world, which is, I describe, perhaps disparagingly, perhaps unfairly, as kind of black box consulting. Give me your information, I'll take it away and I'll give you the answer. But I fundamentally believe that you cannot do good problem solving, you cannot do good strategy work without having deep respect for the context. And I will never know your context, Helen, the way that you know your context. I will never know the kind of the nuance of how your organisation works. And so I could guide you through a process. I could be a critical friend. I could help you bring some frameworks. But ultimately, if you don't make the strategic choices yourself, if you don't own them, it's very unlikely you're going to achieve them. I want to bring this back to a smaller example. So I'm running a small team in um, a medium-sized organisation. I'm totally overwhelmed um, with choices right now. What would you advise in terms of solving that today? Do I go, is there a book I go and buy? Is there a tool I download? Um, Aside from having breakfast on my own and getting some space to think about things, what do you advise to someone who's listening to this podcast today going, I need a strategy, but I don't have no idea where to start. Mm. There's so many books out there. The framework that I like is uh, one called OAS, and it's about objective, advantage, and scope. And it basically just takes it back to what's your objective, what's your advantage relative to other people trying to do this, and what's the scope in which you're trying to do it. And, no, and so scope's often things like geography or customer cohort. I think you, you want to keep it as simple as possible, but I think... You know, when you're trying to make strategic choices and and we do strategy work with our clients before we even get to the choices, particularly when you're trying to make them collectively, as, as, as many organizations often are, they're at least trying to bring multiple viewpoints to it, even if there's someone who's going to make a captain's call. 
you've got to have a shared starting point. And um, it never ceases to amaze me how often I go into organizations and I say, I often like to ask, you know, as a team, how, you know, convergent or divergent do you think your thinking is? Like, do you think you're like mostly aligned or do you think you're kind of, you know, quite opposed on most things? And typically people say to me, oh, no, 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 we're, we're really aligned. Okay. And so we'll kind of start off by actually just sort of trying to uh, engage with the, the leaders individually and asking them about where they're at, you know, what their objective is, what their advantage is, those kind of really basic questions. And often what happens is we come back with um, really long, disparate lists and people think that they're thinking the same thing, but they're actually not. And so before we even get to the strategic choices, we'll often do sort of what we talk about as diagnostic work, which makes it all sound very like complicated, but really is just about saying, where are we today? Because it's really hard to make choices about the future and collectively as a leadership team until you're aligned on where you are today. Is there any advice you have around getting a team aligned to a strategy? I think it's about doing the work together. The point I just shared around kind of starting with a shared fact base, like let's actually both try and expose what our you know, opinions are to the extent they're aligned or not aligned, but let's also get the shared fact base because often uh, what we see happen and there's a professor at Harvard, um, Bob Frisch, who, who runs a firm a bit similar to ours, really focusing on strategy, but that with that real focus on facilitating strategy with clients. And, you know, he talks a lot about and writes about, for most, mostly for HBR, about the need to have that shared fact base and that often there's really different assumptions. And so you might have someone sitting around the table in a sort of, in a sales role who thinks, you know, we've really just got to be out there and doing more on, on marketing and we've, we've got to get market share and then, you know, you might have someone in your product delivery team who kind of has a different view on what's going to change, happen and change to your cost base. And, you know, they can be looking at the same numbers and taking away very different assumptions. And so there's this sort of exercise, I think, in terms of aligning your team, which is just trying to be explicit about as much as possible. I think particularly when we get comfortable working with one another, there's a real risk that everything's sort of implied and that if we don't kind of, if we don't explicitly expose the assumptions that we're making, we'll just trip over ourselves. So we've got the strategy, we're aligned, but we're shifting, we're, we're, we're changing. You're also a change management expert. Talk to me a bit about what I need to consider when I'm taking either a big or a a small, but it can still be a painful shift in the direction of an organisation. I don't describe myself as a change management expert, but we do have some at Right Lane. Um, <laughs> and uh, often we, we use something called the influence model. Uh, and fundamentally that sets out four preconditions that are critical for changing mindsets and behaviours. The idea that I will be willing to change my mindset. I will be willing to change my behaviour if, one, I understand what's being asked of me and it makes sense to me. We probably all think of moments where it hasn't made sense to us when we've been asked or perhaps hopefully it has. And so you need a compelling story for change. I'll be willing to change if I see that the structures and processes um, and systems are supporting the change I'm being asked to make. You know, um, 
And so we've kind of got the reinforcement mechanisms in place. I'll be willing to change if I have the skills and the opportunities to pave in a new way. And so, you know, you're going to need to sometimes make sure that you do the, what's the training or the skills uplift for it. Um, and then fourth, and I actually think this is the most important, is I see my leaders, I see my colleagues and staff behaving differently. There's role modelling for the change. Yeah. I did some change management training at a particular point in my media career, which wouldn't surprise you because media companies have gone through so much upheaval. And one thing that really stuck with me was you, you can't say it often enough. You, you have to keep the messaging up. You have to be really, and I often see that in election campaigns where, you know, politicians say the same thing over and over again. Does that feature, is that, is that what you're saying? You've got to be clear and consistent and saying it once is just not going to be enough. I think you have to say it, but to my first point, like it needs to be compelling. You know, like people need to be able to understand what change is being asked of them. I think sometimes it can feel like there's an incongruence. And so, you know, we start with, all right, if we're asking for the change, why are we asking for it? What's going to be different? Uh, and so, yes, um, you absolutely need to repeat that message, but put the time in up front to make sure that that's a compelling story. And what if you're the one thing you're not good at? You've got a bunch of leadership skills, but the one thing you're not good at is explaining yourself or public speaking or storytelling. Like if, you, if that's not the thing that you're good at, what do you do to bring a team with you on that? change pathway? Hopefully you've got someone in your team then that is good at that. Um, I'm lucky that I have people that are very good at change management and, and work with many of our clients on that. But I think there's also all the other pieces as well, you know, like the, the story and the comms are important, but, you know, I, I really do believe that that role modelling piece is the most important and you can have the best story in the world, you can do the training and you can do all the other bits and pieces. But if you're actually just not, if you're not role modelling it, if you're not living it, you're going to undermine everything else you've done. And so hopefully as a leader, at a, at, at a minimum, you can be role modelling the change you're asking for. Okay, I ask everyone this. What sort of leader are you? <laughs> uh, given my job, I feel like I should say that I'm a strategic leader. I try and be an inclusive leader. Um, you say try? Is that, is, that, is that tough some days? It is tough, you know. Mm. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sure... Um, you know, many people have this moment, you know, I had to make a decision on something today. I really value the perspective of my colleagues. I was also home with a sick toddler. I was trying to make phone calls sort of in between a million other things. It can be really hard to practice that every day. And sometimes I need to make fast decisions. So, yeah, I try. <laughs> I think that's the best I can say. <laughs> well, I find that an interesting one because I've asked other people this, like, if you know the answer and you know where you want to get to and a fast decision, you know, is what you need, is it critical that you are inclusive all the time? I think on big questions, yes. You know, like I lead our team, but I don't lead it alone. I won't be able to do anything ultimately on my own in our business. And I have the great fortune that my leadership team is full of, you know, brilliant clever people whose views I, I, I really value. 
I don't mind making decisions. Um, you know, some people hate it. I love it. I'm, 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 I'm always the person that's like willing to order for the table when you go out for dinner. I'm like, I've got you covered. I'll make the decisions. But when I find the time and I prioritize asking my colleagues, I invariably get something else that helps me maybe not make a different decision, but think about how I'm going to make that decision or how I'm going to act on that decision. And if you believe that the people that you're working with are as terrific as I believe the people I'm working with are, like it's a disservice to all of us not to seek their opinion. Do you have any advice for young women who want to be you and go into uh, consulting and to build strategies for other businesses? Like if you're if you're starting out in at uni, first job, what would you recommend you do to kind of get the expertise that you've got? So I don't think this is a job for everyone. And, and I say this in recruitment a lot and people sort of ask, you know, what does it take to be a consultant? What should I do? What should I study? And I think actually w- w- certainly what I look for in recruiting is uh, a couple of essential traits. And so I think ask yourself first, is it the right role for you? And, and hopefully maybe these questions will help you get to the bottom of that. And so I say, you know, I really do believe that um, for me, being a consultant is about trying to be helpful. And so if you are the type of person that loves it when your phone rings and someone says, oh, I've got a problem, you know, my being evicted from my rental and I don't know what to do or, you know, I've lost my dog, um, whatever it is, and you think, you kind of get a buzz out of that and you think, oh, I'm going to help them solve this problem. If that's who you are inherently, you're probably going to be pretty good at uh, being a consultant. If you're the kind of person that, loves working in teams and can think of nothing better than like the group assignment at uni, you're probably going to love it. But that's not everyone. I think you've, you've, if you're the kind of person that finds yourself, you know, standing in the coffee line thinking this is taking way too long, I wonder how they could do this differently. You're inherently, you know, looking for the problems to solve. Um, you know, consulting might be for you, but it's not for everyone. But if you, you know, if, if those things are, you know, maybe it's worth giving a try. Am I right in assuming that you were in a team of people and then were elevated to the CEO's job? You are. So did that pose any challenges for you or were, or were you set up for succession planning and so your colleagues were aware that you were likely to become their boss at some point? Uh, no one thought I was going to be the boss, myself included. I joined Right Lane um, four and a bit years ago and I knew when I joined the business that Mark, who was the founder CEO, was going to step down. Um, he always has a good strategy and a plan and, and he'd mapped it out and he was very upfront about that. And I knew that there would be a CEO recruitment process. And um, I'm uh, embarrassed to tell you that I ruled myself out of that. I was the youngest person on the leadership team, but I was also about to go on parental leave uh, with my second child when that process was kicking off. And one of the last things I did, actually, uh, before I went on parental leave was write a list of what I thought was really good candidates for the job. And I just sort of resigned myself to the fact that it wasn't the right time in my life for a role like that and that there were others that were ready for that in the right place. Anyway, three weeks after my son was born, I called Mark, you know, largely to find out how this recruitment was going because it was going to make a big difference to my job when I came back. And he said, well, actually... I've spoken to the rest of the leadership team, been working with a recruiter and, and we think you're the best candidate and you should do the job. And I said something to the effect of, you're crazy, I've got a three-week-old baby in my arms. Like, what are you talking about? And he said, I know, I didn't call you. I wouldn't have called you now. <laughs> um, and I said, and, and you want to finish like in a, in a few months, like you've got this timeline. And credit to him, he said, 
if you're interested, tell me what it would take and how I can support you to do the role in a way that'll work for you and your young family. And, you know, I feel like that's set a high bar for me now leading the business in creating space for other people to be a part of our team, regardless of what else is happening in their life. And I feel like I, I need to recognise that, you know, when we talk about being inclusive, often we don't recognise that it really, it does require effort and compromise to create space. And so I, I'm very grateful that he uh, encouraged me to take the space to think about what I would need to do the role at, at this point in my life, but also, you know, delayed his transition significantly. We restructured our enterprise support team, our leadership team. I lead the company working four days a week. You know, I lead it in a very different way to him. We spent six months working together. I had a very young baby thinking about, you know, what are all the things that he, he was doing and what things that I was going to do to lead the business and who would do the other bits so that I could do it in a way that worked for me. That's a great story. It wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> um, but it, it, it is very, um, it's very true to the whole nature of the business, would you say? Absolutely. Kira, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I feel like I really want to talk to your, your former boss now. Um, <laughs> is it Mark, did you Mark. say his name is Mark? Yes. I think I need to talk to Mark as well now. It's been a, a great privilege and thank you for sharing uh, such fascinating insights into building a strategy. And I am going to go off and feel a lot more confident about setting the strategy for the next 12 to 24 months at Future Women. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.